that some Pharisees went and they set out to entrap Jesus with what he said. They sent some of their disciples and some Herodians too. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and that you teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth, that you, do, you show deference to no one because you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said to them, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose head is there and whose title? And they said, The emperor's. And Jesus said, Give to them, the emperor, the things that are the emperor's, and give to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they were amazed, and they left Jesus, and they went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Money, money, money. Someone, we were joking about the full house and the new faces, and what a good thing it is to talk about money in such a setting. Someone, though, right before church said, one of the things they tell people about Cross of Grace is that we do talk about money, and we're not ashamed about that, and that that's not a bad thing. So bear with me. I understand that the Pharisees and the Herodians were out to entrap Jesus. It happens all the time in the Gospels, you may know. Religious leaders and others are always trying to trick Jesus and get him into trouble. They ask him hard questions about marriage and divorce and about which commandment was the greatest. They present Jesus with seemingly impossible situations, like that moment when they brought a woman before him wanting to stone her to death for having been caught in adultery. They watch Jesus spend time with tax collectors and sinners and the unclean and outcasts and outsiders of all kinds, just waiting to pounce so they could prove him to be the fake, phony, false prophet they believed him to be. But what really shows up in all of these instances where Jesus is concerned is that all of their questions, all of their tricks, all of their traps reveal as much about them as they do about Jesus in the end. I mean, they already knew what they wanted to hear. They always thought they knew what Jesus would say or do. They didn't expect there to actually be a correct answer. In fact, they knew there wasn't a correct single answer Jesus could give, which is why they asked their questions or posed their predicaments like they did in the first place. For the Pharisees, for example, the right answer this morning is do not pay the emperor's tax. Faithful Jews should be beholden to God's higher authority, they believe, not that of any government. They weren't really supposed to even handle graven images like the coin they brought to Jesus, let alone use those things for the work of the world's empire in Rome. That's the answer the Pharisees would have preferred. On the other hand, for the Herodians, who were beholden to the politics and politicians of that same Roman empire, the right answer this morning is you absolutely should pay your taxes. 
as subjects to the powers that be, it is right and it is lawful to obey and to pay as the emperor demands. So in the minds of those who confronted Jesus today, according to their plans, in keeping with their respective worldviews, Jesus was, to put it theologically, screwed. If his answer favored the Pharisees, then the Herodians would be upset. If his answer favored the Herodians, then the Pharisees would have a bone to pick. And they were all there for exactly that. To catch Jesus in a pickle, to get him into trouble, to set him up for failure, and to add one more strike to use against him when the time came. And of course, in this instance, it is all about money. And of course, both sides of the fence this morning want more of that money for themselves. And of course, Jesus amazes them with his response because he gives them an answer that neither side expected, neither side hoped for, neither side believed could possibly be true. Jesus says, do both. Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that belong to God. And I think the lesson in that response is pretty simple. It's something neither side and too many of us too much of the time want to believe that there's enough to go around, people. That there's enough to do both. That there is plenty and we all know it. It reminds me of a question that I've been asked a million times and that I've wondered about myself over the years. The question goes something like this. When I decide what to do about my offering, when I do the math about my tithe to the church, do I make that decision based on the net or on the gross of my income? And my snarky reply is to say something like, if you're giving is an expression of gratitude as it is intended to be for God's grace in your life and for the forgiveness of your sins, is it your hope and expectation that God forgives the gross or the net of those sins? A more faithful, kind, and thoughtful pastoral response is to say something like Jesus implies that there is enough to be more generous than we are inclined, and we all know it, so give accordingly. There's an old joke about Lutherans. They tell it about other denominations too, but since we're Lutherans, it's a joke about Lutherans. That the reason we don't go down to the river to be baptized, the reason we merely sprinkle each other or cross our foreheads with a little bit of water when we do the deed, rather than fully immerse ourselves or one another in the waters of the sacrament, is because we don't want to get our wallets wet. (laughs) In other words, the joke is that we want all the blessings and all the benefits and all the abundance that come with being loved children of God, but we're not sure we want to have to respond to all of that goodness with our money. Again, Jesus would say, like he reminds us this morning, that there's enough, people. 
and we all know it. There's another story about a pastor who addressed his congregation during a latest financial stewardship campaign, told them about all they were trying to accomplish with their ministry. And the pastor told his people, the good news is, as a congregation, we have all the money and more that we need to do exactly what God is calling us to do in our life together. The bad news is, all of that money is still folded up in your wallets or stuffed in your purses or stored away in your savings accounts and checking accounts. Again, as Jesus would say, and as Jesus has shown, there is enough. There is plenty. If we're faithful and if we're honest and if we're generous in a way that God has already been so generous with us. What Jesus is calling us to today and every day is to be clear about where and in whom and toward what we put our allegiance. And it's about more than taxes to the powers that be, for sure. We are beholden to the IRS in more ways than some of us wish, but we are to obey the law and we are to pray and to work and to vote in ways that move our government to deal with our tax dollars in God-pleasing ways which can be sad and frustrating and laughable in this day and age so much of the time, for sure. Which is why I happen to think that it is a gift of God to have somewhere else to give our money if and when our tax money does not make God smile. See, I hope the money you give to God through the ministry that we share in this place is seen by you as a blessing for the world around us that the empire cannot and will not and does not muster enough of the time. I'm talking about supporting organizations like Zoe's Place, which is our Mission Sunday offering this month, just as one example that actually works alongside government organizations to do good, faithful, God-loving work in the world. And I mean building houses in Haiti, too. A place whose government is so broken and a people so impoverished it cannot do the kind of work that Zami Fandwa does with our help. And I mean supporting organizations like Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services and Lutheran World Relief and Lutheran Disaster Response, organizations where our offerings do the work of God in ways that our tax dollars do not. And I mean feeding people who are hungry by way of our food pantry. And I mean generally creating a safe, welcoming, loving place of grace and good news and generosity and abundance and hope for all people in our little neck of the woods, in the middle of a world that says and does so much to the contrary. And I mean doing our best as a family of faith to educate and to encourage and to inspire one another about what God's kingdom can look like when we get it right. We are called to give in ways that bless the world even when, maybe especially when, the world does not return the favor. We are called to give because we can, not because we have to. 
And we are called to do that through the church and in other ways and in other places too with the same kind of sacrifice and joy with which God has first given to us and the truth, the good news, the holy challenge from Jesus today is that we have been blessed with enough, with an abundance to do all of this by God's gracious generosity and in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.